One of the greatest gifts in life is a mentor who is a friend. And in my 22 years in the corporate world, I was blessed to be on both sides of a mentor-friend relationship. In my first 15 years of working, I had three bosses, all of whom um, would allow me the freedom to do my assignments without hovering over me or nitpicking on things. And yet, whenever I had a problem or was stuck, they were always available to share with me their wisdom and help me to get the job done. Now, on the other hand, when I first became a supervisor mentor, I made a big rookie mistake. I, I would sit down, and as I was giving out the assignment, I would go into great detail with all the problems that I had had so that that person wouldn't get hung up on them. And uh, that was a huge mistake, and thank God. I was later trained, after not much time had gone by, to say, look, if you're supervising somebody and you want them to develop, all you have to do is simply say, here is your assignment, here are your tools, do your best, and whenever you get stuck, I'm here for you, come to me. And once I started doing that, it was really neat what happened. And what I discovered was, and I should have seen this earlier, was every time they got stuck and came to me with a problem, it was a real problem, and more often than not, I had never encountered it. So we got to solve it together. I would share with them the wisdom of whatever experience I had, and together we could solve the problem. Why do I tell you all this? Well, relationships are relationships wherever they are. And it's always good to do them with godly principles. And what we find here is, um, in some ways, this relationship that I was on both ends of before I went to seminary and became a pastor is the same relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the saints in the church at Philippi. He was their mentor, but he was also their friend, and he made it clear that he was one with them. Um, where am I here? Uh, so remember um, that um, he came to Philippi some 15 years after he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. And he planted this church in suffering, First of all, he found Lydia and a bunch of women in a prayer meeting at the river, and they became Christians. But then when they were in the city of Philippi itself, um, he got in prison because he set a slave woman free from a demon who had earned a fortune for her masters, and they had him thrown into jail. So this church was founded in suffering, but he said in the first introduction to this letter, he addressed them from the beginning. 
They were full partners with him and his team in the gospel mission, these people that he called saints, those who are being made holy. But still, in spite of this very intimate relationship and this oneness and this partnership, he had concerns for them. So as I've been reading different commentaries, and again, I'm not one to categorize things, but the Bible scholars have said this letter, and it was common in the Greek world, is a friendship exhortation. In other words, I love you as a friend, but you do need to work on this so that you can grow and be more than what you are now. So um, this passage today illustrates one of the themes of this letter that I'd never seen until I started preaching through it, even though I spent a semester studying it. Um, Let's see, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Um, Again, just he uses the term we a lot, and you've heard it. Um, But then he gives them some exhortations to follow his example and the example of his team of church planters. And the reward will be the transformation of their humble bodies. We heard it at the end in the glory of Jesus' resurrected body. And I got a little ahead of myself. It wasn't in the introductory notes, but the cross of Jesus is throughout this letter, and I'd never seen it before, before we started going through it together. So I've given you the three-part outline, you know, uh, 4,000 feet, 8,000 feet above ground. Let's go down now and look at the details underlying this broad outline. As I said, there's three parts to it. Part one, he says, may the mature share in Christ's sufferings and may uh, we who have attained this so conduct our lives. That's part one. Now, I'm using liberty and I'm not using the New American Standard totally, but the first half of this first part can be summed up. Therefore, as many as are mature or perfect or complete, may we think as Christ in any thinking differently, um, God will reveal to you what is right. Let's take it phrase by phrase. First phrase. Therefore, as many as are mature, we are thinking this, considering this is our mindset. And what is he talking about? The way of the cross, people. Um, So, He's bringing to conclusion, and it's taken us three weeks, but please understand all of chapter three is one complete thought with one theme underlying it. He began with the command to rejoice in the Lord, and then he followed it up by saying that I will be, we all need to be, I have shared Christ's sufferings and death in order to be resurrected from the dead. We saw that last week. And so this is why there is joy and suffering in Christ. And saints growing to mature thinking in him can have joy together in every circumstance. This summarizes the whole letter. It's the first time I've seen it, the role of suffering. 
I know at seminary they said, is this about joy or is this about unity or both? Well, now I'm realizing it's joy and unity in suffering for Christ. This is what Paul says. The world can't accept the fact that Christ suffered for us, and when he calls us, even though we have his presence, we will suffer with him. And so this is the point he's trying to make. But he begins and ends this paragraph with the word we, and that is so, so important. He says, we all have this thinking, and it ends with, we have attained the same. The same thinking, the same thinking as Christ. And then I love the way he puts this, and I wish we could do this when churches split and when Christians argue with each other. He says, and if you are thinking anything differently, this also God will reveal to you. What a statement of faith. What confidence in God. He says that if some of the members of the church cannot yet affirm his teaching, he's confident that the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to them. God has revealed himself in his ways in Scripture, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So here's something I would implore us to keep in mind and to practice. Whenever we disagree over matters of doctrine, may we determine to seek answers in God's word, uh, in the revelation of his word, um, all the while praying for guidance from the Holy Spirit. Let me just share this. It came back to me. Uh, I heard this wonderful saying by a Christian. Those who have the word without the spirit will dry up. Those who have the spirit without the word will blow up. But those who have both the word and the spirit, they will grow up grow up into Christ's likeness. That's what Paul is saying. And then he concludes the first part, however, into which we have attained to the same conduct ourselves. I chose that translation for the word, and it was in one of the translations. But let's first of all, what does this word attain mean? Well, I looked it up uh, through a you know, software concordance, and what this word can also mean is to come upon, come to, or arrive at. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, remember when Jesus was driving out demons in the Gospels? And he said, I am driving out demons so that you may know the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has been attained. Attained in whom? In the king himself, Jesus Christ. And then uh, Paul used this word to describe where he and his church planting team had arrived at, what they had done. He says, because of us, the gospel has come this far, essentially the whole Mediterranean reason. But there's also a flip side to this. And he's writing to the Romans Actually, in sadness, he said, Israel, my people, the Jews, did not come to or attain righteousness, 
by trying to do the Torah in their own strength apart from the faith of God. And in his own testimony earlier in this chapter, Paul said the very same thing. I did everything that a good Pharisee Jewish boy could do, but I had still fallen short. I hadn't yet attained, but now in Christ I have. So he says, in Christ, conduct yourselves. And this word is used to describe how soldiers march. In other words, march with the Holy Spirit leading. And I think about, you know, we, we don't pay attention enough in this world. I mean, this prayer that I prayed and all the things that are going on in the world. People, we are in a spiritual battle and we need to be soldiers of Jesus Christ. And just as Joshua and the army, as they were conquering the promised land, Joshua met Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. We need to be marching with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our general. You know, I've heard Bible teachers say General Joshua. Well, it's General Jesus Christ. We need to be conducting our lives as we march together behind our commander. Second part, he says, give attention to the pattern uh, you're walking, of your walking according to our patterns. So be walking as we are walking, uh, because many are walking as enemies of the cross, thinking earthly things. So there's, there's a real contrast in this middle. It's two sides of the coin. So he develops and continues with the point in part one with this term of affection. Brothers, you must imitate me Pay attention to our pattern. And in this case, it's not we with the saints at Philippi. It's his church planting team that was rotating on and off with 46 different named people on it. So Paul had just given his testimony of how much he needed um, to be fully identified with Christ. Okay, in verses 7 to 11, last week we saw, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain from, from, you know, resurrection from the dead, life. And he had written to the Corinthians, and there's a lot of similarities to his letter to the people in southern Greece, Achaia, and these people in Macedonia. And he said, and, and I love this, uh, it was actually used at the end of an actuarial paper I read once, be imitators of me just as I of Christ. <clears throat> so he's saying, don't be like me because I'm anybody special. Be like me because I'm doing all I can by the grace of God to be like Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to this letter of Philippians. And remember, in, in the middle of chapter 2, it's talking all about, let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. And he gives the whole gospel of the cross. So that's what he's urging them to do. And then he says you should look carefully, carefully to those walking according to the pattern that they have seen in us, meaning Paul and his team that's been called out to do the Great Commission. 
They are intently, intently to observe. That's what this means. How Paul's evangelical church planting team was living their lives and then there to do the same. Why? Out of the blue, but there's always conflict in life. Out of the blue, he switches gears and says, because as I have been telling you, with tears, with tears, many are enemies of the cross thinking earthly things. So again, phrase by phrase, there's much here. Because many are walking as I have been telling you often. Now, you know, it's not a big deal, but people are always searching scripture. You can read what's in the outline, but at least two times after the planning of the church, scripture tells us, Paul writes in other letters, that I have gone through Macedonia and Philippi was the chief city and his closest church, so that's two times. Another time he talked of his desire. But we don't go, need to go nitpicking scripture over this. He said here, I've visited you many times and told you often. Let's take it at face value. But now, also weeping, I am telling you. And I thought of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. And if you remember that story, it's, it's a powerful story with many layers to it. But um, all who have the mind of Jesus, and that's what he's been urging throughout this letter, will weep and be deeply moved to groans by ignorance and error. Nobody there believed that Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, despite all the miracles they had seen. So again, Paul is imitating Christ by groaning. You know, we, we should not consider, you know, as enemies that we want to see destruction to people who aren't following Jesus Christ. We should be weeping for them even as Paul wept for them. But again, we can't ignore the truth of it. So what does he say? Number one, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, the Messiah King. Okay, now who are these enemies? And there's been a lot of ink spilt over it, but I think the best understanding of who they are, and Paul's always running up against these people in all of his letters, these would be itinerant preachers of the gospel not sent out by the Lord. Remember he said to the Ephesian elders, be careful because wolves will rise among you. And they teach that faith in God, even if it does not embrace the cross, it's enough to be right with God. If you ever hear that all you need is faith and it's just some loose, fuzzy kind of faith, that's not really the gospel. And, and what's, the, what's the way you really know? They're enemies of the cross. They won't tell you that Christ died for your sins so that you can die to your sins. And the only way is by accepting that cross and receiving that cross. And, and that would drive Paul crazy. So here's, here's what we must understand and participate in. Christians must die to their sins. We can't keep enjoying them and saying, God will forgive me. We must die to our sins on the very same cross on which Christ was crucified 
for our sins. And you can read that in Romans 6. Secondly, of whom their end is utter destruction. And if you look at the English translations, and too many of them, you don't catch the wordplay. Paul began by saying, those who are complete, those who are maturing, those who are coming to their rightful end in Christ, think as Christ thought. And he's using the very same word for the enemies of the cross. Their end is utter destruction. That's kind of scary. We should be weeping over it. Then in the middle, he puts, in the God of whom is the stomach or the belly. I finally found a good quote in my um, commentary of what the church fathers said. One of my human heroes is John Chrysostom. That was a name given to him, Golden Tongue. He was quite a preacher. And I didn't give you the whole quote in the sermon outline. If anybody's interested, I can give it to you. Maybe I'll put it up on the website. But I just took his metaphor and I paraphrased it for succinctness. And again, he preached about 400 A.D., and he only preached about nine or ten verses a week, even though he preached over an hour. Okay. He said, a flooding sea harms the shore less than a flooded belly harms our bodies and souls. So he's put up this image. And we know this from Cape Cod. No matter what damage a sea does to the shore, if we indulge our appetites of our stomach, we hurt ourselves more. And then he gives this exhortation, set a bound to your belly, just as God has set the sand to the sea so it won't overwhelm the land. Whose glory in the shame of them. Think about this. They think it's wonderful and glorious that they can be gluttons and that they don't have to bring themselves to the cross of Christ. And they're so ignorant, they don't even know they should be ashamed. I think, was it Jeremiah who said, here's a people that has even forgotten how to blush. Same thing in the New Testament. And finally, who are thinking earthly things. Now, I looked up all seven occurrences of this word, but the best one is in James, and I'm sure most of you know it. James wrote that those who are having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts are acting in earthly wisdom, not heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom comes from God through the Spirit, and it's in the Word. But if people are just acting, and I forgot to say this back with these uh, false uh, teachers. What it also goes on to say, Paul says this in scripture, is they are doing it based on their own feelings and desires. You see, we can never trust our own feelings and desires. That's earthly. We must put our faith in God, in his word, and in the spirit to guide us. So in light of this middle part, now that we've come to the end, may we all commit to not, uh, not being earthly enemies, not being selfish, all about me, my feelings. Don't be enemies of the cross of Christ. Let us embrace it, and we have an opportunity at communion. 
And then the third and final part, because our citizenship is in heaven, from which we are awaiting the Savior, who will change our humble bodies to the same as his glorious body. The first thought here is because our citizenship is in heaven, we're eagerly awaiting for the Lord and Savior. So he says, because our citizenship, while we're below, it is up in the heavens. So this is dual citizenship. I remember Chuck Colson wrote some books about this and others about two kingdoms. Same here. Uh, I don't think I've ever brought this out in the introduction, but I may have said it when we were going through Acts. Philippi was a colony for retired Roman soldiers, and every citizen in Philippi had Roman citizenship, which was a big deal, and they were very proud of that. But Paul is writing to remind them also that even while they are still here living below, their true citizenship is in the heavens. And nobody translated it that way. It doesn't mean that there's multiple heavens. It's a plural of emphasis. Everything we take comes from above. It's kind of like the article I had in the Vestry Voices. God gives us commands and promises and his love so we can enjoy him. It comes from heaven. And the fact is, everyone in Christ, including us, we have dual citizenship. But here's the heart of it. And Paul doesn't quite spell it out here other than by implication in the previous part. All with citizenship in heaven must carry their cross, just as Jesus commanded. And this may require us to give up some of the rights that are given to us by our culture, by the laws and the practice, because the exercising of these rights puts us in conflict with God and his ways. And so that's a way of carrying the cross. Our culture may say you can do that. Our culture may even applaud us if we do it. But if it goes against the cross and the ways of God, we must choose God's way. In other words, our higher citizenship is our citizenship with God in heaven. So let us realize that even though we have dual citizenship, we must make every decision of our life based on our citizenship in Christ's kingdom, even when it means taking up his cross and perhaps even death. In other words, in today's lingo, this, this came to me this week, the ID, the ID card for citizens of heaven is the cross that they are carrying. That's how we really know we're there. This is what will separate so-called cultural Christians. I was talking earlier this year about kinos, Christians in name only, from the true saints, those who are being made holy in Christ by grace, through faith, by the power of the cross. And then he says, from which heavens also a Savior were awaiting expectantly, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
waiting in expectation. I, I love it. I did it one Christmas Eve candlelight. What Paul wrote to Titus as Titus had been assigned to be the bishop of all the churches on the island of Crete. That's an area as big as Rhode Island. And here's what Paul said. We are awaiting our blessed hope. Uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Almost the same language in both letters. And he's fully named in this sentence, four names. It starts out with the Lord. I'm sorry, it starts out with the Savior, okay? Now, Savior is the Greek word for Savior. Then he uses Jesus, which is Greek, but in Hebrew, it means Savior. So twice he uses the word Savior. The Christ or the Messiah is the King of Kings, but most importantly, he starts by calling him the Lord. More than any other name or title, that's how Jesus is referred to in the New Testament. He is Lord over all he created, whether we realize it or not. And again, think of Philippians chapter 2, where it says, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord, one way or another. And then um, it says that, um, okay, Here's the bottom line, the payoff of everything. And I remember once I preached on this without building up to it with all that came to this point. He will transform our humble body to the same body as his according to his power over all. So Paul says, who will transform? That means change the body of our humiliation. But notice he says, we and our. This is the third time in part three where he uses those pronouns saying he's totally identified with the saints in Philippi. And of course, when he says humble body, the Bible points it out. We know it by experience. Every one of our bodies will eventually wear out and die. Deterioration. But then he says, conformed to the glory of his body. That's the glorified, resurrected body. I tried to think of some way to explain it, and I love what's in John's gospel, and you all know it. On the very day he rose from the dead, they were all locked in a room at night for just fear. In Jesus' glorified body, despite the locked doors, just materialized in front of them, and gave them the benediction of shalom, or God's wholeness and peace. You see, mature saints are waiting for transformed bodies from the Lord like his. And then he concludes with this, and let us not forget this. According to the working of his power to also subject everything to him. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will exercise his power to make everything he created to be subject to him. And again, we have two sides to the coin. People who refuse to be his subjects while living on earth will sadly, as Paul said earlier, weeping, be subjected to eternal separation from him. But maturing saints who choose 
to be in him while living below the heavens will rejoice in being subjects of their sovereign Lord forever and ever with transformed bodies. Again, this is our hope, people. Just like with Titus, we wait for the appearing and the blessed hope when Jesus comes back. Mature saints right now are waiting. We haven't seen it yet, but we're waiting for our transformed bodies in the Lord, from the Lord. So let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our toil is not vain in the Lord. That is the last sentence of the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. You can go look it up. Finally then, let us imitate those who are maturing in Christ's likeness by fulfilling his last commandment to make disciples of the people of all nations. Again, if we have this assurance that we know our bodies will be transformed when Jesus comes back, we need to share it with others. We need to pray that God will convert some enemies of the cross to be saints, being made holy like Jesus. We can wrap up the conclusion of chapter 3 in the letter to this point. Citizens of heaven carry their cross as Jesus did, as they're growing to maturity in him, but they must leave behind all earthly things that are opposing the cross of Christ as they die to their sins while waiting in expectation for the Lord to transform their humble bodies to the same form as his glorified body. Again, that is our hope. That is why we come and worship him. That is why we celebrate communion. Mature saints are waiting for transformed bodies from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.